What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Ride Share Rodeo, Uber Lyft Driver and Gig Economy Weekly News. Sponsored by UberLiftDrivers.com, RideShareRodeo.com, WithPara.com. I'm your host, SJ, and it's time to get it on. Before we jump into anything here today, um, I want to talk about next week. Next week, uh, we have a special episode. Um, the podcast always drops on Tuesday. Uh, when we do some live things, we do them on Monday and then integrate it into the podcast the next day. Uh, for those of you that want to be a part of next week, what we're going to be doing is I have five um, I have five app-based delivery drivers from five different cities, five different states, which is five different markets. And we're going to do a little uh, side-by-side comparison. Um, size of towns differs. Uh, we got Denver, Colorado. We got San Francisco, California. We got Boise, Idaho. We got Bowling Green, Kentucky. And we have upstate New York all represented, and uh, that will be our panel. And we will also be taking live questions and uh, just kind of discussing what market-to-market looks like right now. Um, Most of us, if not all of us on this panel, have been rideshare drivers, I believe. Um, Maybe not two of them. But regardless, we might touch on that a little bit. But mostly this is going to be app-based food space thing and um we're just going to talk about the differences in market to market it's a question i get asked a lot and i really think that everybody needs to understand when they sign on uh to do these uh to work these gig platforms it's it's good to um it's it's good to put things into perspective and not expect to make what somebody's told you they make and maybe they've been doing it for years and they know how to tough it out. They know how to, they know the fishing holes, all the things that we kind of talk about a lot. Um, but we are going to have uh, some great guests and it will, it's going to happen live. Uh, we will post the link on social media on Monday, but it will, it will start at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 6 p.m. Mountain time, 7 p.m. Central time and 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, if you can join us, uh, you might want to do that. It's going to be an interesting conversation for sure. Um, okay. Well, that was uh, crazy timing, right? As I was about to move into uh, a, little, a little piece here, um, I literally just got a text from the sixth person we were going to have on the panel and then decided not to have a sixth person if he couldn't um join us or if somebody from uh his his team couldn't join us but we're gonna have uh jason um from gig economy podcast uh used to be uh grand rapid or gr rideshare adventure um they are a bi-weekly uh um podcast you can find them on facebook youtube um twitter um probably their website all kinds of places Any, anywhere you'd list anywhere you'd listen or watch live podcast stream and you can uh um it's cool you can type in questions with them and you can uh interact while they're doing it you know if it's you know sometimes it might take them a second to see your question because it's a it's a you know it's jason and uh another one or two guys and uh and that's their team so you know us, these small teams take uh take a lot of our time and work 
to make sure that uh, we're getting it going. But I'm really glad Jason's going to be joining us. Um, if it wasn't him, it was going to be Jesper. So, Jesper, maybe we can have you on another episode. Um, he also is over there with the Gig Economy Podcast guys in Grand Rapids in my home state of Michigan. What up? And, uh, yeah, it was literally just as I was saying this and recording, I got the text. So just wanted to shout that out. We'll be seeing him next week as well. That's great. Things to say this morning about Drizzly. I wonder if you can give us a little more color. We had you on, on the announcement. I'd love to hear more. Also, back then, we asked you about the potential for cannabis to be folded in. And, you know, New York State has made some moves on that front. And Cuomo has talked about letting delivery services expand that business so that more people can participate. Do you think that that pot is boiling now? Well, we're thrilled uh, about the Drizzly acquisition. Obviously, we've got to go through a review to make sure that uh, the acquisition is appropriate and closes. We're confident about that, but that will take time. Uh, and for us, what Drizzly is, is all about is what we call our fast and frequent strategy, which is what are the types of deliveries that a high percentage of consumers are going to want delivered fast into their home and are quite frequent. Uh, and we think obviously food, grocery, pharmacy, and alcohol are part of that category. Drizzly is absolutely the category leader in the U.S., and we think our global profile can help them expand outside of the U.S. at a vastly accelerated pace as well. Uh, when cannabis, uh, when the road is clear for cannabis, when federal laws come into play, we're absolutely going to take a look at it. But right now, with grocery, with food, with alcohol, et cetera, we see so much opportunity out there, and we're going to focus on the opportunity at hand. Dara, this morning you also reiterated your 2021 adjusted EBITDA profitability target. But I wonder, I know a lot of people wonder, um, when is Uber profitable after overhead? Is that quarters or is it years away? Are you able to make even a very broad estimate or say that you'll even get there? Well, when we talk about adjusted EBITDA prof uh, profitability getting there this year, we mean profitability after overhead on an EBITDA basis. So all-in profitability, and that will include businesses that we're leaning into, like grocery, where we will be losing money and in investing just because the opportunity is so big. And then we will have businesses like our mobility business that are a bit more mature, where we have stronger margins, essentially able to fund some of these growth businesses. So we think we're going to have a combination of profitable businesses. We're going to have a combination of businesses that are very, very early in their growth trajectory that is going to set us up for long-term top-line growth and margin improvement. The first improvement we want to get to is overall profitability, and we're confident we will this year. Our last question on regulation. In the U.K. recently, you guys reclassified drivers as workers, characterized it as turning a page. Uh, critics, however, have called it sort of this half step because they're not full employees. One of your competitors in Europe, JustEatTakeaway.com, is actually making their drivers full employees in places like the U.K., France, and Spain. The CEO wrote not long ago, how can we employ tens of thousands of people when this is apparently impossible for others in the exact same business? Just ask you to respond to that and tell us if that could ever be sort of in your future, making drivers full employees. Well, we want to give drivers what they want. And 
over and over again, drivers in the U.S. or drivers in the U.K., all over the world, they want the flexibility that comes with using your system. Uh, if you employ someone on a full-time basis, they're, you're not going to, going to be able to give them the flexibility to work whatever hours they want, to work for competitors if they want to, to work wherever they want, if they want to work around their home or if they want to come into the center of the city. Uh, 75, 80 plus percent of drivers say that they want that flexibility. And the worker designation in the UK actually looks very much alike to our position of independent contractor, uh, giving maximum flexibility to workers, but also giving them benefits uh, such as health care benefits or time off, et cetera. So we do believe that this worker des designation is the best of both worlds. And the most important thing is it's actually what drivers want on the system. Well, that was a lot of uh, big words there coming out of Dara's mouth, huh? So um, Drizzly... The alcohol delivery is up and running. Uh, the acquisition is is moving. And um, Dara talked about uh, independent contractors and 80% of them wanting the flexibility. Um, and if you also caught the in the very beginning of that piece, if you hadn't already heard it this week, yes, he did say that, you know, they are looking into, now I've read a bunch of these articles because some of them say waiting for a national approval um, once it's once it's nationally legal, um, some are saying uh, some of the articles are saying that uh, they've interviewed people within Uber that are saying if the state's legal, they might operate in the states. Um, of course, I'm talking about marijuana, and uh, Uber has said that they will, um, as soon as they can, take on the de uh, marijuana delivery game. So I don't know. Um, how that'll work. I don't know. Um, it's a little bit different than eats. I, I'm, I'm not sure. And I live in a very pro, uh, marijuana state, Colorado. We were the first and, uh, you know, we're definitely the first to have all the walls torn down with it. We've seen the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, and we've seen a lot of the changes that have happened over the past 10 plus years since we went legal. Um, but uh, I don't know if you need to be bonded. I don't know if you need special licensing. Um, it's not like you're delivering McDonald's or somebody's dinner to them. You're now going to a dispensary and picking up um, uh, marijuana and, and delivering it to their house. I mean, I would, I, you know, we've had the, I, I don't know. We've had the issue, and I guess this could apply to Drizzly as well. We've had the issue where people use other people's Uber accounts to call rides, or they use their parents' account. Um, when school was before the pandemic, you know, we'd get lots of high school calls and get over there, and they weren't old enough using their parents' account. Well, you know, are we going to run into a lot of that, delivering something, and then the person's not old enough, and how is that handled? We, I guess that could be seen already through the drizzly thing. You know, what do you do if, if you get there and it's a kid and they say, oh, my parents aren't here, they just stepped out, or they're in the shower, or they, they pull some, try and pull some excuse uh, that they can just take it, you know, and it's a high schooler. Maybe they're going to um, have a little party with their friends that night. I don't know. Um, but then I would assume that the same thing would apply to marijuana and, uh, that'll need to be looked at because, um, I can see, or I can already see a bunch of problems with this, but we'll see.
it's odd because as rideshare is coming back to um, all these markets, we are seeing um, that almost every market, regardless of its size, uh, where it stood, if it was oversaturated, uh, if it was way oversaturated, if it was just enough people, if it was uh, oversaturated but still a good market to drive in pre-pandemic, um, now we are seeing that we all wondered how post-pandemic we'd come out of this and how it would look. Well, most cities are starting to come back around, and drivers are kind of wondering, is it that time to come back on? And Uber is having a horrible time having enough drivers. Um, I know that, for one, in Boston, um, Uber is not allowed to do surge pricing. So um, I was reading a really good example the other day of after a Red Sox game. That people were, you know, that people were, um, you know, wanting Ubers, and it was uh, 15 to 25 minutes, and some of the rides were canceling, so they'd be waiting for eight minutes. Said 15, and then the person would cancel, and then they'd get a different, you know, they'd have to re uh, request a car, and then they'd get 22 minutes waiting. Now that so eight and 22, now they're going to wait a half hour. Um, so it really, I, I just some crazy things. Um, I know that the surge pricing thing they're not allowed to do in Boston. I don't, you know, know if that'll hold forever. I don't know um, what will go on with that. But I I know one of the biggest challenges right now that they are facing is the um, uh, lack of drivers on the platform. Uh, but let's turn our attention back to the markets. Miles, you write in the morning brief newsletter today about what downside to the return of economic growth, and, and that was very much on display in Uber's pre-announcement yesterday. Yeah, I mean, Uber, um, what a fascinating announcement from the company coming out within an 8K uh, yesterday. So total company gross bookings at a record high. The mix there still continues to favor the delivery business, which is now uh, running at a, an annual run rate of a billion dollars um, in, in gross bookings per week, $52 billion uh, booking there for um, annual run rate for, for Uber's delivery business. But something that, that stood out to myself, Julia LaRoche wrote about this on Yahoo Finance. I think anybody who read the release, this caught their attention, is Uber calling out an in, in inability to have enough drivers or riders, couriers on the platform, saying that demand both for rides and for deliveries uh, currently exceeds the supply. Now, the company said they're going to have to invest in getting more folks onto the platform. But the way that we frame this in the morning brief here is that the reopening trade um, is really only going to be limited by how much suppliers, whether that's a restaurant with enough tables, either because of staff or regulations, whether it's Uber with enough drivers, whether it's uh, a vacation town with enough places for people to stay in, go on down the line, airlines with enough flights, enough staff, so on and forth. Supply is really the limiting factor here as we get into the summer months. Uh, most people who, everybody who wants to be vaccinated will be able to be vaccinated by July 4th, probably at the latest, even including today's Johnson & Johnson news. So the ability to go out and travel safely is going to be available for anybody who wanted a vaccine to make that possible as we get into the summer. And there is just not going to be enough supply for people to do all the things they want to do. Now, the market has received Uber's news fairly positively because it still says that demand for its services continues to improve over time. And I think that's the main theme that investors will be looking for on any reopening trade in first quarter earnings. 
are you continuing to see that sequential growth, whether it's weekly, monthly, and certainly at a minimum quarterly? Um, but I just thought it was, a, Sazi, a really fascinating you know, announcement from the company, bringing together a lot of the themes that we see with various reopening trades and, and putting them all in one place. Well, it's also, it's, no, it's a great point, Miles. And it's also worth bringing up, if you're an analyst and you're on these conference calls, it may be high time to start asking executives, what are your plans on reskilling workers or hiring and attracting new workers here? Because I read that Uber releases, you know what? People don't want to be Uber drivers right now. There's so much competition for talent on the other side of the recovery here. What, what can Uber do? Yeah, and you know the NFIB out with its its latest small business report, and you know that report has its own flaws. But um, in that report, a record number of small businesses say they were unable to fill a current job opening. Now, again, some of the unemployment benefits, the enhanced unemployment benefits, have made um, you know forget about the cost benefit of, of getting sick or not getting sick. The actual economics of not working for some folks have been better to continue to receive unemployment rather than go seek employment. But even backing out um, the, that small slice of the labor force, you know, Sally, I think a lot of people are also looking at their lives and looking at what they were doing, what they weren't doing, what their opportunity set really is after the pandemic and saying, you know, maybe I don't need to settle for this, or maybe I'm ready to take a risk and pursue some career track that felt like it would have to be a huge leap pre-pandemic. Now we all sort of realize how fragile, you know, our, the reality we construct for ourselves can be. And, and I do wonder how many people are, um, you know, looking at, at past career tracks, whether those are service jobs, blue-collar jobs, white-collar jobs, and are really going to have a rethink around what they want to do with their lives so long as they have them after the pandemic. And I know that's getting you know, kind of deep and abstract here, but you've got a huge hole in employment and you've got a lot of corporations that have one set of expectations on how this hole is going to get filled. And I'm not sure workers are, are really on the same page there. So this, this is a problem in every market right now, um, lack of drivers. And, uh, you know, to be honest, from the very first days of Uber, um, you know, I know they were in California, but I remember the first days of Uber being in, in Colorado. Um, you know, it was in the very beginning that they were paying so high that that's how they built their 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 drivers. Um, other drivers telling people how much they made, getting, you know, uh, referral fees and things like that. And then they started cutting the rates. Now the pandemic happened. And just like you just heard there, there's people now going, well, I don't know if I feel safe doing this. Um, I don't know that they're paying me enough. Um, just a lot of uh, wanting some revamping here. And the bottom line is, you know, there's many people who are going to feel safe enough to do this. Uh, part of um, the service industry, no matter which job you, you, you might decide to take in the service industry, you're going to be face-to-face with the COVID pandemic. Um, that's just an industry I've spent most of my life in, uh, not just rideshare, but, um, you know, just service industry in general. And there aren't really jobs where you're not going to confront COVID um, if that's no matter what you're going to take in the service industry. So if you're ready to drive, I think the real question becomes, when can Uber go back in time to the pricings uh and the the split with the driver that made a lot more sense for the driver to work, um, you know, like like we just heard there, though it kind of uh, it kind of uh, illuminates us something I say often here on the podcast, which is if you want a job, 
they're out there. You know, if you want minimum wage and and uh, and you want uh, health insurance, that's out there. You can go have that. You can go get that job tonight. Um, I'm confused why if that's what people are searching for and they're ready to get back to it. I'm I'm confused why that's a an issue with people that you know they're you know that they want minimum wage from Uber, which really won't ever work. We all know that this won't work. Um, but I, I also going back to the first piece that I played here today with Dara, with Dara, uh, Dara um, he mentioned the worker status in London and not when he was asked about employees. I don't know if you guys caught that. He mentioned the worker status and he said that they're actually happy with that. I don't think that he means he's a hundred percent happy with the decision. I think he's stoked that they didn't have to call them employees. Yes. Um, this worker classification that was deemed down by the Supreme Court over in London, I don't think it really existed until this case. Um, this is a very unique case, uh, and it, we know that it's it's going on here in the U.S. Uh, went on in California with AB5, AB2257, Prop 22. We had it go on in London for the past few years, and... Uh, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if if they're happy with it. Maybe it's that they see a path to profitability with still being able to maneuver that worker status and be allowed to allow flexibility somehow. But you're not going to get all the, you know, perks that everybody seems to want to be able to just turn on the app and make money whenever you want. That was something that I think was very clear there that they're willing to go the route of what the drivers want. Now, I don't think that that's their driving ambition. And I think we all know that, um, to make drivers happy, that's not what they're doing. They're out to make money and they especially need to make a profit soon. But I think that, uh, I think that they are themselves realizing, hey, if we don't want to end up with this employee model that will put this out of business, um, we need to uh, we need to get back to some kind of better payment or maybe an in between meeting, which is what I've always said. You know, it's like far left, far right. It doesn't have to be AB five. Everybody's employee right to work states. Uh, have to be part of a union if the consensus is to be with the union. Um, so you, it's not just a freedom of choice for the union. It's a forced hand that you be in the union if 50.000001% of the voters or of the people uh, working gig platforms decide that they want uh Unions, then in right to work states, you would be forced to join that union or quit that or quit that job um, or gig or however it's going to be labeled. But I think there's a lot more, like I said last week, um, I think there's a lot more to this worker classification than we really know at this time. Um, clearly, it's a win considered for the people who wanted to be employees and be paid better over there, but I don't think they got the win they wanted. I I think that employee status was crucial. They didn't get it. They got the worker status. They're happy, but they're not stoked. And Uber isn't stoked, but it seems to be a lot more willing to work with a worker status type thing. And I don't know if it's just angles they're finding or if it makes it easier to tie it up in court over there. Uh, but from what we learned from Morad last week, the Supreme court ruling will hold. I mean, that's in, in Europe, they're a lot different than we are here. Um, you know, they, you know, they kind of, uh, 
this has been going on for a long time, and they're, and they're probably going to stick to that decision. So, um, interesting, interesting, interesting. All right, so the last piece of news that we got this week um, that I really wanted to uh, at least play is a piece um, about is DoorDash and Uber Eats good for restaurants? And uh, that'll kind of tie in with what we're going to talk about next week, too, um, from the driver perspective and from these app uh, perspectives. But it's also um, worth taking in and thinking about, you know, as the pandemic has gone on and as these restaurants have had to work with DoorDash and Uber Eats, is there um, is there something else coming down the pipe? Are, are they looking now at other options because of all the fees and other things that are incurred to the customer by the end? You know, from the time they place the order at their restaurant of choice to that order showing up, um, there's a lot of fees tacked on. There's a lot of this, that, the other. Um, it's not the same price they would expect from the restaurant. And then in the beginning of the pandemic, we know there was a lot of tipping, which we'll talk about next week with the panel. And we also know that, um, that tipping is way slowed down. So are people just so frustrated that the amount of money they have to spend on the actual dinner, um, that they're not, that they're not tipping, even though that's not the fault of the driver bringing them their food. So we're going to listen to this, and I'll come back on the other side. Um, yeah. I was crying every day. I was crying. I'm not, I'm not even going to front. I was crying every day. I was sitting there in the kitchen crying. The pandemic has crippled many industries, but restaurants have had an especially challenging year. Pre-pandemic, over half, 51% of all food spending in America was allocated towards the restaurant arena. During the pandemic, second quarter, that dropped down to the high 30% range. It's now around 46%. But while dining has dropped way down, food delivery has grown considerably. DoorDash and Uber Eats, the two largest delivery apps by market share, both saw their sales double from the end of 2019 to the end of 2020. As of February 2021, DoorDash held the most market share in the U.S. by far. But some cities have other favorites like Uber Eats in Miami and Grubhub in New York City. Restaurants are relying on these delivery apps more than ever. Before it was 50-50, before the dine-in and walk-in and our personal website, obviously it took the majority of the, 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 the share. After the pandemic, it was... No, it's not. No, no, I think it's close to 80 now. 80. It's 80%. It's, 80, it's definitely 80%. DoorDash alone delivered 543 million orders between January and September of 2020. The pandemic has been a huge challenge for all of us in DoorDash, the industry, uh, and, and, and everyone. And I, I think it, it was both a challenge as well as an opportunity. And in an economy with about 9.5 million fewer jobs in February of 2021 compared to February 2020, the flexibility of food delivery as a job can be beneficial. Of all the industries in America today, the restaurant industry has been the industry that has been most impacted in terms of sales declines as well as employment declines. 
kind of the height of the pandemic, uh, we nearly two million new dashers joined the platform, which was like incredible. So I started full time for DoorDash in March of last year. So yeah, that's how I got into it—a closing restaurant and then full time once the pandemic hit. I don't know. I just really enjoyed it, and the money was good as long as you're very driven. And some some of these guys have like three phones. You used to see them. It's crazy. They have three phones: one from Grubhub, one for DoorDash, one for Uber Eats. It's, and, it's um, fascinating. It's a whole another world. It's, yeah, it's a completely different world. Though the rise in delivery has provided new jobs for drivers, there have been some challenges for restaurants. The delivery apps charge the restaurants fees in order to make money. Uber Eats charges a one-time $350 setup and equipment fee, plus a 15 to 30% fee for each delivery. Grubhub charges a 20% marketing fee, a 10% delivery fee, and a processing fee of 30 cents plus 3.05%. DoorDash told CNBC that the company doesn't disclose specific fee amounts, given they vary since the company offers a variety of services for vendors. Delivery, like for my business, is 80%. So I can understand before as a as a restaurant that was thirty percent delivery, taking a commission fee of thirty percent for my thirty percent of delivery wasn't a lot of money. But when your delivery is now eighty percent and you're taking thirty percent of my eighty percent, that's a significant amount of money. The average markup is forty-one to fifty-eight percent across platforms. Gene. It does, Melissa, and that excludes typically a fifteen percent tip that they put in. All three major platforms put in. You got to back that tip out. These fees result in higher food prices for consumers as well. There's the price of the meal you'd get if you were going physically to a restaurant. This handy guide from Loop Ventures sets that price at eighteen fifty-eight. That price usually goes up when a restaurant lists items on these apps. Then there's a delivery fee, which is sometimes covered by subscriptions like Dash Pass and Grubhub Plus, and a service fee. There's also a regulation fee, which companies including DoorDash and Uber Eats added to their tally after cities like New York capped delivery fees at 15%. We're always viewing these apps as a consumer. And not the other way around, where we're like, okay, we'll pay the extra five or six bucks convenience fee, but you don't see what's happening on the other side, and and that was that was mind blowing. We were both engineers by education, and our careers were in engineering. And then we actually met at our previous company where we worked as sales engineers. And then a month before the pandemic, we bought Uptown Pokey, and we became the new owners. By the time we like got a feel for the way things operated with the business and making those little adjustments here and there, it was locked out. After cities and states banned indoor dining in March of 2020, restaurants around the country had to figure out new ways to stay in business. In the pandemic environment, one of the most important components of maintaining what sales there are is dealing with what the industry calls the off-premises market, and that includes, for example, takeout, delivery, drive-through, curbside, food trucks, and catering. The one thing that the pandemic has done for the industry is basically accelerate more usage of that off-premises market. The majority of online orders are coming from third-party apps like DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats. An analysis from Second Measure shows that nearly half of U.S. consumers have used one of these food delivery apps in February of 2021. Donna and Eric started using these apps as soon as they took over Uptown Poke. 
a month before the New York lockdown started. It was a move they felt they had to make to stay relevant and in business, especially in New York City, which is home to over 20,000 restaurants. We're, we feel like we're very small fish in that, in that area. Yeah, How many restaurants are participating? Third-party delivery companies have a base of con customers, right? People are scrolling up and down, trying to figure out where to order food from. My restaurant is based on the working-class people of New York. Working-class people like myself, we use third-party delivery companies. Now, maybe as we get familiar with the restaurant, we will start to order directly from them, but there are some restaurants that are in our community that we don't know about. So for us at Field Trip, we, were, we use third-party deliveries for new people to figure out who we are. There's a saying in the restaurant industry that demographics is destiny, and that's entirely true. And the demographics continue to trend towards pickup and delivery. Pre-pandemic, over 60% of all restaurant traffic was off-premises. That's 60% pre-pandemic in the second quarter of 2020 actually moved up close to 90% and is currently edged back a little to around 80%. To help out businesses in the first few months of the pandemic, Grubhub suspended fees for independent restaurants in certain major cities. Uber Eats waived delivery fees for over 100,000 independent restaurants in the U.S. And DoorDash offered zero commission on pickup orders and set up a $20 million merchant marketing program, among other initiatives. All platforms were offering some concessions. Oh, yeah, right, right. There were promises of concessions, especially for New York City, but this is not something we were seeing right away, which could have helped us in the beginning, because the first few months of the pandemic were just just hitting our pocket. It was, it was, it was difficult. We were really thinking about, like, maybe we should close down. Uptown Poke continued to use multiple third-party delivery apps to widen their consumer base, including Grubhub, DoorDash, and Uber Eats. And they noticed the amount they were paying in fees. When you see your net payout and you compare it to how much actually you made from that order, and they're taking 20-30%, you feel like, ugh, like it's a, it's a pandemic, like I wish I we didn't have to pay these fees. But on the other hand, you're telling yourself that we're exposed to a much larger area. Hopefully because of our ratings and reviews, people will see an order from us. It's a lot harder to advertise directly to get people to your website. But it's still at the end of the day, during a pandemic, after a lockdown, and you're trying to pay rent, and you see that the money is being taken away and it's taken away. Yeah, and you're, yeah. And you're counting every single penny. You're becoming more in tuned with your finances. Yeah. You, you, and you, you have to be, because either that or you close your doors. Before the pandemic and at the beginning of the pandemic, restaurants across the U.S. could pay up to 30% in commission fees for these delivery apps, on top of other fees like marketing and delivery fees. DoorDash decided to reduce their fees. Some cities and states put a cap on the commission fees that delivery apps could take. So I'm curious to know how DoorDash feels about that fee cap. Yeah, I would say that the pandemic obviously is a challenging time for restaurants and local businesses and in general. But some apps found a workaround. It turns out uh, that simply they're adding what is called a regulatory service charge. If you look when you're checking out tonight, you'll see this. So uh, it is uh, more expensive than you think. So they can cap the commission rate, but they're like, well, you know, we're just going to raise 
the marketing and order processing fees. Yeah, and we, we can't afford the marketing because the amount of money we put into the marketing just for one platform, it's not for across all platforms, it's just one platform completely wipes out that profit margin and we actually running a negative. With some of these platforms, Donna and Eric also say there is some difficulty connecting with customers. We would want everyone to order with us. And the thing is that when people order directly through us, we are able to solve issues like that. We're able to solve it so fast. Now, when they order through third-party delivery, that distance is so far, we're not even able to sometimes reach the customer to resolve an issue. We're not even able to maybe change something or offer them something. Um, so that's a little tough. I would say I would prefer Grubhub because they have that phone number. Yeah, I can call They have the customer's phone number where you can call them if there's an issue. Yeah, their drivers show up in a timely manner. We want them to have that conversation, and, and we'll be evolving the technology to enable more and more interactions between the merchant and the consumer as we go through time. But despite the expenses, the restaurants we spoke to still do need these apps and say there was a positive side to using these platforms. There's definitely a lot of positives, and one of them is like knowing that there's a delivery guy nearby to pick up their food, and we don't have to have someone on staff. We would need about 15 guys here at all times. We looked at restaurants that, that were off the DoorDash platform and those that were on the DoorDash platform, and those that were on the DoorDash platform were eight times more likely to still be around now and ready to thrive post-pandemic, and that, that's something that we're all very, very proud of. It's hard to speculate what the new normal will be for restaurants post-pandemic, but there could be a lasting avoidance of dine-in restaurants. J.D. Power and Associates basically did a survey that said 71% of consumers say they will continue to get food delivered from restaurants as much as they have or even more when the pandemic does uh, subside. According to the National Restaurant Association's 2021 report, only about half of adults say they plan to eat on-premises at a restaurant or fast food place during the next few months, if that option is available. 36% of adults would sit inside at a restaurant, and 25% of adults would sit outside. Uptown Poke used to have space for indoor seating, but after the lockdown, Donna and Eric converted the space to accommodate a larger kitchen for more off-premises orders. They're hoping to bring people back inside once it's safe to do so. But it's not impossible to imagine a future where many restaurants only exist to deliver. I feel like whenever they place an order on Grubhub or DoorDash or Uber Eats or any of these third-party platforms, it's distancing ourselves from them, from having that connection. We're just a store on Grubhub, just like an item on Amazon. <laughs> Aww. In fact, many restaurants don't have any dine-in options, and the popularity of these ghost kitchens, as they're called, is on the rise. Ghost kitchens could create a $1 trillion global market by 2030. You might be ordering from a ghost kitchen on DoorDash, Uber Eats, or Grubhub and not even know it. A lot of ghost kitchens are four restaurants in one with the same staff putting out the food. So you cut down on labor, you cut down on all your expenses, you still be able to put out delicious food. Uh, the ghost kitchen world excites me. Um, and I think it's a good place uh, for diverse talent, people that don't have a lot of money to start up. And then from the ghost kitchen world, they can then open up a brick and mortar later on. This is a whole new environment 
that is definitely a long-term trend. It is not a fad. It doesn't mean that every restaurant operator will elect to go down this venue. It just means that in terms of how the industry has adapted not only to the pandemic environment, but how the industry will operate in the post-pandemic environment has changed. It's important to note that while these delivery apps are much larger than any one restaurant, New York City Councilperson Mark Jonah compared it to David and Goliath. These companies are actually running net losses for 2020. Grubhub lost $155.9 million, DoorDash lost $461 million, and Uber Technologies lost about $6.8 billion in 2020, though the company doesn't break down its gains or losses from Uber Eats in a usable way. We recognize that there's a balance for restaurants between growth and profitability, and not every restaurant can afford to pay the same amounts, right? Because delivery costs money, right? The dasher actually has to be incentivized to do the delivery, right? And so our strategy has been to offer a range of options for merchants. But understand, it's a business, right? They're running a business. They're not doing us a favor. So, like, we kind of understand what, what, you know, what they were trying to do. That doesn't mean it isn't tough on restaurants, though. It might be an easy decision for customers to use apps like DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats. The decision for restaurants is not so easy. There is a lot to consider, and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. As a restaurant owner or entrepreneur, there's always a hesitation uh, about any decision you make. Is this right for me? And what might, what, what might be right for me, it might not be right for my peers or my friends. Um, and those are some decisions that I had to make. There's more to us and there's more to other small businesses that are on these platforms. Just that we have to tailor ourselves a little bit. If you really like the food, I would just say, you know, get to know them personally. It's, even though it's a pandemic, there's all these ways to reach out and get to know the restaurants. And I'm sure our restaurants would prefer that, you know, over just seeing your first name. So as we can clearly tell, and probably everybody already kind of expected or knew, was uh, obviously just like um, Dashers and Uber Eats drivers and Grubhub drivers um, are concerned about their earnings, these restaurants are saying they see the benefits of being on these platforms during the pandemic. However, they've also had to experience the same thing the drivers do and seeing these percentages of 30, 30 plus percent being taken out of the food order to the customer, which clearly um, makes the restaurant owners, I'm sure, feel horrible because these could be their regulars paying 30% more and not really putting into account that is this... 30 is it 30 percent more because um of the delivery charge a lot of a lot of people just don't break it down and really look and so potentially they're thinking that because of the pandemic um the delivery charge and the restaurant menu items have just gone up that much uh not the case so we'll continue this next week and like i said right before or right as i was announcing uh next week at the beginning of the podcast um Jason from uh, GR Ride or from the Gig Economy Podcast, GR Rideshare Adventures um, in Grand Rapids. He will be joining us on the panel as well next week with Andre Courier from Denver. Um, we have Ride Upstate from Upstate New York. We have Lifting with Larry 
from Bowling Green, Kentucky. We have Jason Peason from uh, Boise, Idaho. We have David Pickerell from San Francisco, uh, California. Did I name everybody? Did I forget somebody? Did I forget? Might have got them all. So that should be five, six guests. I don't know. If I forgot somebody, I got you in the beginning. Anyway, folks, um, next week, next Monday. So next Monday will be the live podcast. It'll be out on all social media. I'll put it out on Friday that we're going to do it. And then on Monday, I'll put a uh, link to the uh, room if you want to add comments, questions, concerns. um, Just participate in it. Uh, There will be the six of us. We'll all be on the call. But I will be taking, I will be reading anything that's being posted and asking the questions, or they'll be able to read them themselves. And we can address anything that anybody is having. And even if other dashers and people want to get on there and and, uh, give their take on a situation, we'd love that as well. Um, That said, uh, that's it for the week. And uh, be good, do something good. be careful, folks. Uh, you know, the variants out there are becoming, uh, is it the P1 now from Brazil? Um, it looks, that one's looking a little bit uh, like nothing's kind of uh, phasing it. So, um, you know, I know here in Colorado, we have a couple cases of it here, and it's not, it's the Brazilian strain. It's not everywhere yet. Um, the B117, uh, the UK variant, um, is pretty much everywhere and it's more common now in the United States than the original variant. And then, uh, the South African variant isn't everywhere, but the Brazil one sounds like the really scary one right now, the P one. And, uh, yeah, I know here in Colorado, we've had a few cases. Um, some people have died of it and, uh, yeah. Um, keep those masks on. We're not done yet. And again, you know, None of us want to be putting the masks on for another year. We'd rather put them on for another two months or so until it is safe. It makes sense to, after after a year, I know we're all at our breaking point, but come on, if we don't pinch it through the end of this, we're going to be stuck in this for another year, two, five years, who knows. Um, so it's I think it's stick-to-itiveness, and it sucks because spring and summer are here, and the warmer weathers and wanting to get out. And, uh, so make sure you're exercising. You know, I know that everybody's saying do walking. I live in the city, so I hate walking in the city. I'm a big hiker, uh, backcountry snowboarder. I like to get up into the mountains. Um, but I, I'm not somebody who really likes to walk around the city neighborhoods, um, with major streets everywhere with my dog. And it's just not, it's just not appealing to me. Um, but luckily I live in Colorado and you only have to drive half hour, to be somewhere super cool and what used to be super remote, but now at least semi-remote because of the pandemic. Anyway, um, keep your exercise up, try and stay healthy. Um, you know, uh, try and watch your diet. Um, and, uh, meet us back here next week on Monday, 5 PM Pacific time, 8 PM Eastern And you can do the math for Central and Mountain Times in between. And we will see you next week on Monday at that time, back here on the Rodeo Live Roundtable. Have a good week, y'all. Peace.